Now, we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about also giving our treasure, our time, our talent, and our treasure. These are the things that God has made us for, that our lives would be emptied for the sake of the gospel. Now listen, the series that we're going to spend time in over the next four weeks is all about how Christianity or the gospel has an effect on your attitude or your practice, your disposition, if you will, with regard to your money. Now, I have to say, whenever I do a series like this, somebody inevitably asks, why in church do you need to talk about money? And I want to talk to you about that. Uh, You know, and I know, and I am very sensitive to the fact that we live in a culture that is very distrustful of organized religion. I'm aware of that. I'm going to upfront admit that my salary, as well as the rest of our pastors, come from the giving that's done here at North Point. So there is a temptation on my part to want to avoid the subject. But I'm going to tell you we can't do that. We really need to talk about this. And there are various reasons why we need to talk about it. But like other subjects, we're going to talk to this very directly. Everybody say good. All right, because we're just going to speak to it as directly as we possibly can. I promise you in two weeks, you're going to be saying, Pastor, can we talk about sex again? That's what's going to happen. Because <laughs> we're going to do some meddling in your lives. And if you're here, that means I have permission to do that. Does that sound all right? All right, here we go. Why do we need to talk about this in the church? First reason is simply this. If you've got notes, grab them. You're going to need them right now. First reason is this. is because it's tremendously practical. We have to talk about it. Now, because, see, you know and I know that so many of your problems revolve around money. I know that, by the way, because I listen to you. I listen to them. I hear your worries. I hear your difficulties. So many of the complexities of your life revolve around how you spend your money, how you make money, how you use money. Some of you right now are worrying about money more than you are anything else. In fact, Jesus knew that this was the case, and so in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, you see, he talks about the worries of this life are related to the deceitfulness of what? Come on. And that actually has the potential to do something, to choke the word and to make your life unfruitful. In fact, I think this is why the Proverbs say about riches, it says, don't wear yourself out getting rich, cast but a glance at what? And they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And some of you have seen that happen in your life, am I right? Your wealth, it seems to fly away. So we have to talk about it. It practically affects your life. Now let me tell you the second reason why we need to talk about this. And it's biblical to talk about this, because the Bible is all about money. It talks all about money. In fact, it might surprise you to know that the Bible talks about money more than any other subject except for the kingdom of God. It spends more time talking about money than any other subject. It is almost as though God wants to speak to us about this. It is the only place in Scripture where God literally competes the God of mammon or money to himself. He says you cannot serve both God and money at the same time. He said it's impossible. So I just encourage you, you start reading through the Bible. In fact, I just finished reading through the Gospel of Luke in my own quiet time, and I'm telling you, the Gospel of Luke is almost completely about money. In fact, it'd be great if during this series, if you don't have a regular quiet time and you're not in God's Word, here's your marching orders. Just get into the Gospel of Luke. Read about the life of Jesus, but you're going to see the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is always talking about money. 
So listen to me. How can I stay away from it? It is so central, biblically, to how we're told to live as disciples. There are so many practical reasons. It affects your life so much. Now, here's the third reason, and this is the most important reason, and I'm going to say this throughout this series in multiple times in multiple ways, so I need for you to write this down. Ready? Write this down. Here's the truth. There can be no significant spiritual growth in your life unless you put your attitude toward money in God's hands. Now that is a big statement, so let me say it again. I want you to sink, I want this just to sink in. There can be no significant spiritual growth in your life, in your heart, in your maturity, unless you put your attitude toward money in God's hands. Why? Because the issue is just too big. It is just too pivotal an issue. That's why God speaks about it so much. Friends, listen to me. If you would go to a doctor, imagine you go to a doctor and you go and you say to that doctor, you know, I really need to improve my health. You say, doctor, I'm just not healthy. I'm always tired. I am constantly getting sick. And you say, doctor, can you help me? What's that doctor going to say, do you think? That doctor's going to look at you, and that doctor's going to start asking you some questions. They're going to say, listen, you're going to have to tell me everything. Uh, we have to, you say, you want a checkup? We'll do a physical checkup. That's fine. But you've got to tell me, how, how are you sleeping? That's important. How well do you sleep? How many hours do you sleep? Oh, and, and how are you eating? What do you eat? How much are you eating? They're not going to stop there, by the way. They're going to ask you about your work. How many hours are you working? How satisfying is your work to you? They're going to say, tell me about your stresses and are there personal stresses going on in your life? They're going to have you fill out a questionnaire. In other words, that doctor is going to look at you and is going to say, tell me everything. Now, if you looked at that doctor and you said, no, 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 wait a minute. You're a doctor. You're supposed to stick to the physical. I don't want to talk to you about my personal stuff. Doctor, I don't want to talk to you about my time at work. I don't want to talk to you about my sleep and my stresses. You say, doctor, that's not your department. Your job is to help me with my health. What do you think that doctor's going to say to you? That doctor's going to say to you, well, I'm sorry, but they're all connected. You can't just break your life into departments and act like one doesn't affect another. Now, listen to me. In the same way... God looks at you and says, you come to me because you want meaning in life. God says, you come to me because you want forgiveness. You come to me because you want strength. But if you want me in your life, you're going to have to let me talk to you about everything. And that includes your money. And if you say, I want God in my life, but you don't want God to talk to you about your money, then you don't really want God in your life. That's impossible. It does not work that way, friends. So let me be very, very clear. This is the point for the series. There can be no significant spiritual growth in your life unless your attitude toward money gets laid in God's hands as a worship, one of the purposes of the church. I surrender it to him. By the way, one of the reasons we're calling this series signs is because we're talking about how do you know when the gospel, what are the signs that the gospel's got a grip on your money? That God's got a grip on your money. What are the things that you should see? And I'm telling you, one of the things that you should begin to see in your life is you developing a remarkable, radical, eye-popping kind of generosity. That's what will happen if God's really got you. You will become generous.
So let's just look at the passage we just read. Let's look at it again just because I want to spend some detailed time on it. You ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. Got your notes? All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians again says, remember this, whoever sows, come on, will also reap. Whoever sows will also reap. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. By the way, look at me for just a minute. I didn't say this in the last service. But do you know, you are defined by your commitments. People say, what defines my identity? Is it my feelings? No, it's not your feelings. It's your commitments that define you. Your commitments tell you who you are. You say, well, I'm not really committed. I make commitments and then I break them all the time. Well, that tells you something about your identity. You were defined by your commitments. And he says, each of you should decide in your heart what to give. But notice, not reluctantly or under what? compulsion, for God loves what kind of a giver? By the way, the Greek word for cheerful is the word, I love it, I've said it before, it's the word hilarious. It means God loves it when you give hilariously. Like, literally, like when you walk out and you see the boxes where you're going to put your tithes in this morning, and you should all do that, and when you walk out and do that, you should be laughing. (laughs) I love this, man. Give me another box, you know, and put that right in there. Hilarious. I love to give. You should give cheerfully or hilariously. And God is able to bless you. How much? Abundantly. Abundantly. We trust him in all that you give. So that in all things and at all times, having all that you what? Having all that you what? Come on, everybody. Need. Need. Notice God will supply all your needs, not all your greeds. Right? God will supply your needs, not always your greeds. But he gives you everything that you need so that you will abound. Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your what? Righteousness. Your giving notice is tied to your right living before God. Isn't that powerful? Yeah, it is. It is. And you will be enriched in every way so that you can be what? There it is again, generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but notice this, also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Notice your generosity is a proof. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies the confession of the gospel of Christ. For your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else And in their prayers for you, hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given us, given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, did you notice, as I just read through that text for a second time, how often the word generosity, generosity, generosity appears? Eye-popping generosity. Why? Because that's the mark of a Christian. Now, what I'm going to do in our remaining time is I want to show you three things. I want to show you first the impact of that generosity. In other words, what should be the effects of our generosity? This, that part's very important. So pay attention to that. The second part, I want to talk to you about the motivation for your generosity. In other words, 
I want to start with the impact. I could have easily put that last, but I'll start with it up front. But then you have to notice why you're motivated to give. And then secondly, the measure of your generosity. In other words, you Fresno people, you Kerman people, whoever's watching, online people, you're wondering, what's the bottom line? What do I have to give? We're going to get to that. Does that sound good? All right, here we go. Run through those three things. First thing, impact. The impact. God says your generosity should be a mark to the world. Notice, 2 Corinthians. Paul is raising money for famine relief. And you see this in detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He talks about a most severe what? The trial was a famine. And he says of this church, he's writing to them and he says, in your extreme, he's speaking about another church to the Corinthians and he says, in their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. In other words, this church is not giving out of their plenty. They're giving out of their lack. They're not giving because they managed to find it in the budget. They're giving out of what they lack. And they're giving. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their what? Ability. Paul is going to churches in Asia Minor. He's raising money. The church has always asked for money. He's doing that. Christians give money, and in this case, they're giving it for the famine. They're giving it for Jerusalem. Now, if you look, the impact on the, uh, from the generosity is twofold, because what Paul is saying is, if you remember the letter, he says, listen, they're going to be physically fed, but also notice this. This is key, guys. He says, also notice in verse 13. He says, verse 13, he says, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what's that saying? That's saying that there's a twofold impact of your and my generosity as the church. This is unique to the church, by the way. This is amazing. Only the church can say this. Ready? Write this down. Twofold impact of our generosity. Here it is. First, that we will practically help people. That's the first thing. We'll meet their needs. We will help people, and we do. We try and do that as a local church, but that the church doesn't just do that. No, 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 no. Most importantly, we lead people to praise who? To praise God. Now, guys, that is the context of what it means to give to a church. In other words, what is the difference between giving to a church and any other charity organization? Well, what Paul is saying is that the church is in a unique position Because not only can we actually help and serve people to meet their practical needs, we can provide for people, but it says the result of the way we're supposed to do it is, let's go back to the scripture again right here, we're supposed to do it so that, read it with me, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. That's the goal. It's not just to meet physical needs. In other words, our job is, yes, to help with the material, but our job, most importantly, is to help with the immaterial. Now, do you realize that every human being is made up of two parts? There is the material, and there is the what? Immaterial. You have a body, and you have a what else? You have a soul or a spirit. Is that right? Yeah, of course it's right. By the way, a a physiologist might tell you that you're a big bag of chemicals, and that's all you are. But I guarantee if somebody walked up to you and called you a big bag of chemicals, you'd want to punch them in the nose. Why? Because you know that you are much more than just a big bag of chemicals. You know there's more to you than just that. Guess what? 
there is. And you have deep needs that need to be met that only the church can meet, the deepest kinds of needs. Listen, anybody can clothe you, but it's in the church that you find meaning in life because the church is the body of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me say it to you this way. You say, is the church really all that? Well, let me put it how Jesus put it when he's speaking to the earliest church members and look at what he says here. He says, I will give you, the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be, come on, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this scripture is saying the church has the power to bind people up and shut them out of heaven or set people free and bring them in. What a responsibility that's on your shoulders, my shoulders. What a privilege that is on your shoulders and my shoulders. But God says the impact of your generosity should be that the church does something that no one else can do. We deal with the bigger issues of life, the immaterial issues. For example, why do you exist? I can meet your material needs, but people need to know that. Why do you exist? What is your purpose in life? Why were you made? How do you know the difference between right and wrong? How does a human person live morally? How do you live right with God? What brings you forgiveness and peace with God? See, these are the things that the church does. Friends, listen to me. If people are not dealt with spiritually as well as physically, they are not being dealt with. Do you understand that? I can say that I'm going to meet your physical needs and you can give to all sorts of charitable organizations, but if they're not meeting your spiritual needs, they're not really meeting your needs. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm excited because, um, you know, I, I said last August, well, yeah, a long time ago, August, and then I said again in January, I've been talking to you guys about our next stage of campus development is going to be, we're going to renovate our venue and turn it into the most beautiful cafe you've seen in the Central Valley. And I'm not kidding you, it is going to be unbelievable. And uh, I mean, I, I want to show you conceptual designs right now. I can't, but I want to. I will soon. We're going to do a campaign for this. It's going to be awesome. But I can tell you, I've already been meeting with people. Lots of people in North Point have a vision for this. But here's what's amazing about it. Our mission statement is to create a positive faith environment where non-churchgoers are encouraged to become fully developing disciples. And so in that positive faith environment, it's not just that I could buy somebody a cup of coffee or give them a cup of coffee. You know, they come to the Peace Center to get clothed or they come to a job workshop at the Peace Center. I can not only say to them, well, come on over and let me buy you a cup of coffee and have a gospel conversation with them, which is going to be so much fun here on this campus. But here's the cool thing. I can meet the physical need, but I can do it in this context where people are receptive to hearing the gospel, maybe for the first time in their life. People that would never come to church are going to want to come here because we're going to spend a lot of money to make sure it's the best cup of coffee in Fresno, Clovis, Kerman, Sanger, Chowchilla even, my Chowchilla friends. Now, there's no other place in Northwest Fresno that does that. There's what I like to call McDonald's coffee. That's called Starbucks. And, and there's McDonald's coffee, and that is you can go through, and they've got good stuff, and we go there out of convenience. But I'm talking about a place that people want to come and just hang out and study and do business. I'm talking about, yeah, yeah that's worth clapping for. That's, that's pretty awesome. Now, you say, well, what's your vision? Is your vision just to serve coffee? No. My vision 
is that while we meet a material need, we're communicating the hope of the gospel. Why? Because that's a person's biggest need. Now, I'm going to tell you guys, listen. If people don't have these spiritual needs met, again, they're in trouble. And the church is able to tell them. It's sort of like I was making a sandwich the other day, and I'm making a tomato. And it's funny that I, but I thought about this. Not making a tomato, but I'm cutting a tomato, and I'm putting it into a sandwich. I don't make tomatoes. Shock. I'm cutting this tomato, I'm putting it into a sandwich, and I thought about the difference between what material can tell you and what the immaterial can tell you. And I thought, you know, a botanist can tell me a lot about a tomato. It can tell me much more about a tomato than I can possibly know. But one thing a botanist can't tell me is, why the tomato? (laughs) They can't go there. The church can go there. The church can describe the meaning of a person's life why it exists and who it exists for. And that's the point. And unless you're dealing with the bigger issues, it's meaningless. Now notice what it says. Let's look at verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, that's the material, but it is overflowing in expressions of what? Come on. Because of the service by which you have what? Proved yourselves. Wow. Your generosity proves something. You say, how do I know I'm a disciple of Jesus? Well, this is indicating something here. It says others will praise God for the obedience. Look at this strong language. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. There should be an obedience that accompanies your confession, and it's manifest through giving. Some of you right now are saying, can we go back and talk about sex? Guys, Let me ask you a question. The Roman Empire, let's look back at the beginning of the church. Why was the Roman Empire not able to satisfy the needs of human beings? Why did they fail? Largest empire in the world that the world had ever seen, why did they fail? Because this is the dawn of the church. Of all the times in history, Jesus chose to come then. Why? When you study the history of Rome, one of the things that you learn is that the old religions and the old philosophies of the ancient world, they were disintegrating because they couldn't bear the freight of people's meaning needs. They could feed people. They could take care of the poor. But here's what happened. The church came in, and the church could not only feed the people, but the church could lead them to actually praise God. And it ran through the Roman Empire like lightning. And guys, I'm a history major, and and I'm glad I was, because there's no subject I like better. I'm telling you, it changed things. This eye-popping, radical generosity combined with the proclamation of the gospel. This is what the church was about. This New Testament energy and purity that changed people holistically and completely and physically and spiritually. Friends, you ask me, what was the first church about? That's where I want us to get. Fresno, California, North Point Church. I want us to have the most authentic first century experience that we could possibly have today. Where is the attractiveness of the church? Where is the magnetism of the church that causes people to say, what is going on in their life? Let me tell you about the early church. History major, right? After the last apostle John died, about 20 or 30 years later, so again, all the apostles are gone, the early church is spreading, took over the Roman Empire inside of 200 years Christianity, 
But if you research it, you're going to find a very, very ancient Christian document. It was called the Epistle to Diognetus. Now, Diognetus was a non-Christian. And it was written by somebody who was trying to explain Christianity. It was written by a Roman skeptic who didn't even believe in Christianity. Now, guys, you got to see this. This is what it says. Let's have a history lesson. Are you ready? 20 or 30 years after John dies, look at what it says. Let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is where? They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. Interesting. Notice this. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, and they make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet they have plenty of everything. (laughs) They are treated outrageously, but behave what? Oh, I want the church to hear that today. They are treated outrageously, but they behave respectfully. Come on, guys. They are mocked and bless in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Letter to Dognetus. Now, I want you to look and see what are the qualities that you just read in that ancient letter that was written by a skeptic about these weird Christians. And I want you to see how your life matches up. Are you ready? Let's look at the first one. Write this down. Everyone marveled at this. First, the church had a complete absence of racism. There was the complete absence of racism. This is a powerful thing. If you study the book of Acts and study the scripture and you start to see that there was no more racist time in history than the first century. Nobody looked after anybody else's people. You only looked after your own people because other people were dirty, ethnically. And Christianity would come in and it would start literally tearing down walls. And so where there was a city, for example, Paul was preaching the gospel in a city. They had to send Barnabas to check up on Paul. I didn't say this in the last service either. You guys are getting so much more than they did. Okay, you ready? So, so, so it, but Paul sends, uh, I mean, they send Barnabas to check up on Paul because he's preaching the gospel. And he goes out to Antioch. And if you know anything about Antioch, you would know that it's this geographical city that was, had a wall around it, but it also had all these walls within it. Do you know Why? Because they were divided ethnically. They couldn't have the Jews living with the Greeks, living with the Romans, living with the Africans. They couldn't, they couldn't have all these people together. But then Paul comes in, he starts preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden, the Christian communities, they start wanting to tear down the walls because of this complete absence of racism. Now, look at what Diognetus, look what the letter says. It says, for every foreign country is to them their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. Do you see what that means? Again, the very first Christians were Jews. They were Africans. They were Greeks. They were Romans. But they were Christians first. Why? Because Christianity gives you a higher authority than your cultural tradition. That's why. And frankly, Christianity gives you a higher loyalty than your race. And it broke down racism. It cut racism down at the root 
For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is their foreign country. Amazing. Second thing that marked the early church, write this down. This is powerful stuff. Write this down. They held a high view of life. It says, notice, they marry and they have children, but they do not kill the unwanted. Why? Because back then it was normal when you had a female child, you would throw it in the river. And parents had the right to do that because females were not valuable. They just took up money and space. They were unwanted. So what did the Christians do? The Christians come in and say, no. They said, every human person, every life, whether that life is wanted or not, people are infinitely precious. They had a high value of life. And and the people didn't know what to do. This is unbelievable. Number three, write this down. They had an unusual view of sex. Now, we just spent four weeks on this. But notice what it says here. It says they share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. Now, see, here's why. The pagan understanding of sex was that it's like an appetite. What do I mean, appetite? Well, if you're hungry, what do you do? Come on. And if you feel sexy, what do you do? You're all sheepish. You have sex. (laughs) If it's an appetite, that's what you do. But see, these Christians come along, and they have this absolutely remarkable sex ethic because they say, no, 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 no. Sex is God's appointed way to say to another human person, I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you and you alone. That's what sex is for. It's a celebration of an exclusive and permanent commitment. And so what's so interesting was that every single one, guys, this is fascinating. I need you to think about this for just a minute. Every single one of the early Christians that had been raised in a pagan sex ethic, when they looked at these Christians, they realized this Christian sex ethic, it was like they felt liberated. You know what's ironic? In most cases today, you were all raised with a Christian sex ethic and you think it's the pagan one that's liberating. Because things today have been flipped upside down. Unbelievable. They had a very unusual sex ethic. These early Christians. Fourth, and what we're talking about over the next four weeks, write this down. They were remarkably generous people. Remarkably generous. Notice, they marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone. What does that mean? Their table is their food. It's their resources. It's what what they had. Notice, they are poor, and they make many rich. They are short of everything, yet they have plenty of everything. They were marked by this eye-popping, stellar generosity. People couldn't believe how quickly they would give their money away. Listen, friends, look at me for just a minute. I'd ask you this. This is an apologetic. This is, should convince you of the Christian faith. Just answer the evidence. How could the Roman Empire, with its slavery, its infanticide, its corruption, its decadence, and its immorality, how does that empire get turned upside down within 200 years called a Christian nation? How does that happen? I'll tell you how. Nobody could match the beauty of Christian lives. Their lifestyle was gorgeous. I'm going to ask you, how's yours? 
What's your lifestyle? Now, I said I want to talk about the motivation for generosity because it's true. The impact of generosity is clear, but now let's talk about what motivates a Christian to live this way. Can we do that for just a minute? And guys, I say that because people had never seen anything like it and nobody could figure it out. People looked at Christians and they wondered, what is it that's happened inside of them that that has changed them so much? I mean, they look at them and they say, my goodness, something radical must have happened. And that's true. Something must have happened. But again, I'd like to ask you, how do you think people look at us today? Is the gospel spreading like lightning through Fresno, Clovis, Kerman, Chowchilla, Auberry? What do you guys say? Is our faith like wildfire? Or would you say no? Does anybody say that about you? Like, wow, how generous they are. How generous North Point is. What is it that was operating inside of them? Now notice this. Here's why I ask you this. Notice verse 13 again says, it's because of, here's the call, because the service by which you have what? Come on. Others will. For the, that. Do you guys see what I'm showing you here? Can you see that? There is an obedience that accompanies a confession, if it's a real confession. See, your motivation, it's a motor. It is something that drives you. Well, what motivated them? Well, I'm going to give you two words. They're theological words, but they define, and we're going to cover these in future weeks. But let me tell you one of the things that motivated them. In a word, theologically, it's called creation. Write that down. Creation. And that is that when you understand creation, you know that God made you, and God made everything. And that everything that you have, he is the source of all good things anyway. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Notice what it says. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What he's saying is the reason you can give away your money, the reason you can give away your wealth is because it's all God's anyway. Now, today, your culture is telling you, and you have to decide, am I a disciple of my culture or am I a disciple of Jesus? Because culture is telling you, spend this money on yourself, you worked hard for it, you owe it to yourself. Have you ever noticed how many commercials say that in some way? But what God says is, well, okay, but you earned it with what? You earned it with the air I've given you for free? You earned it with the brain that I gave you for free. You earned it with the connections that I've allowed you to have. Don't you see? God says, don't you see that everything that you have is from me? The fact that you're born today instead of 1,200 years ago in the mountains of Tibet is because of God. Now, do we all understand that? You know, I think it's funny because we talk about tithes around here and a tithe means a tenth. We're going to talk about that in coming weeks as a pattern for giving because I think it is a healthy pattern for giving that you give a tenth of your income back to the church, back to God. They practice this by bringing their tithes and laying them at the feet of the apostles for the good of the church. 10%. 
And people, oh, God cannot give 10%. I can't imagine, you know, and, and, they, and they get really upset at this. But I, it's funny to me, though, if I'm honest. It reminds me of how parents get irked at their children. You know, it wasn't that long ago that I bought my son a $70 Xbox game. Can you believe Xbox cost that much money? $70 Xbox game. And, you know, he was playing this game for about an hour, and then I'd walk up to him and sit next to him and say, hey, could I play? My seven-year-old looks at me and goes, no. <laughs> and then he used those two terrible words. He said, it's mine. <laughs> I'd like to ask you, does that make any sense? It's like you could buy a kid a candy bar and just say, could I have a piece of the candy bar I just bought you? No, it's <laughs> Makes no sense. It's like you look at them and it's like you're kidding, right? I could buy you a hundred candy bars, you idiot. <laughs> I'm trying to do something for our relationship here. That's why people who struggle with tithing, it's like, guys, I'll be honest with you. I don't get it. I'm going to share some information with you in a minute that's going to shock you. Let me ask you this question. Derek, you're right in front. Can I use you as an illustration? Is that okay? All right, everybody say hi to Derek. Derek, you're a realtor, aren't you? Okay, so you're, this is going to be good for you. Okay, so let's imagine, Derek, that, oh, I see somebody way in the back over there, and they happen to be extraordinarily wealthy. I will not point them out. But they're right over there in the second to the last row, third one. In, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. They're extraordinarily wealthy. And let's say that person back there wanted to buy you a $750,000 house and give it to you for free. Can you imagine that? It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? They're going to give you this house for free. And then, and then all they're going to say to you is, Derek, I'll give you the house. You can have the deed to the property. It's your house. All I want is for you to give me twenty-five. 100 square feet, could you give me 250 square feet to store some stuff in the garage? Would you say, no, I don't want the house because they wanted to use 250 square feet, 10%? What about 1%? What if they said, I want to use 25 feet? Would you say, well, no, it's mine? Of course you wouldn't. But we do that to God all the time. Guys, can I talk to you seriously about something? Because what do you have that's not a gift? Let me show you something. This is about how many families we have active at North Point right now. Let's just be real together, shall we? 3,342 active families at North Point, online, uh, in person, at church. Let me show you how many actually give to the life of North Point Church. Here we go. You can throw that up there. 881 of those families actually give. That's 26% supports the budget of our church. Now, you've noticed we are under budget. We are under budget. That is true. So we try and control our spending. We do less ministry when we're under budget because we want to stay in the black. We're trying to be responsible people. But I'm trying to give you a vantage point of my perspective that of all the people that attend, that's currently what, what there is. Let me show you all the non-giving families, if you just throw that up there. 2,461 families that claim North Point is their church that don't give. Now, let me just show you some other numbers. The median income in Fresno County is right here. Now, you may make more than this. You may make less than this. I don't know. Let me show you the current North Point budget. Go ahead and take a look at this number. 
$4,737,200. That's our annual budget for all the ministry that we do. It takes a lot of money to uh, do what we do. But what may surprise you is if the non-givers at North Point, the 74% that give nothing, if they just started tithing, let me show you what the budget would be. If you can go to this next slide for me, please. Yep, if those non-giving, 74% started tithing, there's our budget. Go ahead and go to the next slide. That would be our budget. That's just if they tithed, the 10%. Now, if you added that to the 800 and some families that do support the budget of the church, we'd be looking at that total budget. And there are some people that have written me connection cards saying our budget's too big, and I'd say, no, no. No, it isn't, because I'm just biding by the rules of Scripture. In fact, if anything, anything, our pastors haven't challenged us to faith enough, because I'd say, guys, this is what God's Word talks about, not what Shane talks about. I've already admitted the conflict of interest. Why? Because of creation. We know whose it is. Now, here's the second word that I want to give you. You ready? Write this down. The second word is the word redemption. Redemption. Why? Why? Because, for example, it says in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, it says, I am commending you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing your generosity with the earnestness of others. Paul's literally saying, I'm going to compare what this church gives to this church. And that's how he's testing the sincerity of their love. Generosity. Or again, let's just go back to the main text that we're using today, and we talk about generosity, where it says, there is an obedience that is generous that will accompany the confession of faith. Now, guys, you have to think about this for a minute. This is saying, verse 13 says, you've proved yourselves through your gift, that the way you actually know you've been redeemed, the way you actually know you've come to know the grace of God is, you become remarkably generous. It's one of the few proofs the scripture gives. Now, how many of you again are saying, can we go back to that last series? (laughs) You know, I got this letter this week. I actually talked to this guy this week. This was amazing. He's going to remain nameless. But he heard a story about a pastor who was making a difference. See, this pastor had taken a hiking trip and was so excited to share how wonderful he was to go on a hiking trip that the pastor shared it with his congregation. He ran into a church member, though, who used a wheelchair. And so this pastor didn't want to share the good news of his hike with this person because he knew the person in the wheelchair would never be able to go hiking. But the pastor did some research and discovered an off-road wheelchair that a company makes, and he's able to buy it. Wheelchairs are about $5,000 a piece, but this pastor went ahead and invested in buying one, and his church started buying them, and now they make about 100 hikes a year with disabled people. In fact, here's a picture of this wheelchair, if you just take a look at this. Isn't that cool? So, I have a friend that goes to this church who's radical in his generosity, and I need you to understand about this nameless person that goes to North Point. He does not have a big budget. And I can tell you, he lives from budget to budget. I mean, it's a, it's a very monthly, he doesn't give out of his wealth, he gives out of his lack he heard about this. He was so inspired by the story. 
While he was doing a little bit of research, he found one company that makes them, and during the research, he received an investment check that he thought had been long lost and he had done without for years. So what does he decide to do with his investment check that falls into his lap? Guys, this is a new ministry. We're just starting at North Point because of this guy right here. Why? Because it's a proof. It's a proof that you understand redemption. It's a proof that you understand what Chronicles says when it says riches and honor, God, come from you. You rule everything. You have the power and strength to make anyone great and strong. Now, our God, we thank you. We praise you. Because these things really didn't come from me or my people. No. Everything comes from who? God. And we've only given back what he gave us. Now, a person who understands redemption understands that. They understand, God, I'm yours and everything I have is yours because you gave everything for me. I've been redeemed. Now, I want to say, as the pastor of your church, one of the great glories of the church, and one of my great comforts in my life is that every week I get to stand before a significant number of people that understand this. And no matter who you are, Jesus wants you here, but I'm saying to everybody, God wants you to be a part of something. And you're supposed to be a part of something. You're not supposed to just do this consumer Christianity thing. Jesus says it's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick. God says, I want you to be a part of that. So, what's the measure of it? How do you know you're giving enough? I just ask you two questions as we kick off this series. We're going to be challenging you more and giving you more specifics, but here's what I'll say to answer that. Because the answer is in the text. You saw it. We've read it several times. Verse 13. Look at it again. Look at verse 13 one more time. Here we go. It's a coming. It's a coming. It's frozen. It's not coming. Okay. Well, let me read it to you. It says, the service by which you have proved yourselves Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies the confession of the gospel. That's amazing. So, to know that that's true, two questions you need to ask yourself. Write these down. This is where you start. Ready? As you're soul searching, you need to ask yourself question number one. What exactly has God done for me? What has God done for me? You look at your own life and you say, how far did God go to reach me? What did God give That's how you start getting involved in God's work and meeting the needs of people. The physical needs, but more importantly, the spiritual needs. And then, the second question, if you just write this down. What's it going to take for us to get the gospel work done? That's the question. See, I'm going to give you systems that that are through and through in the Bible, like tithing, and those are good systems, but... But Jesus actually raises the ante. Do you you know what I'm saying? You read the New Testament, and really he's saying, you give whatever it takes. What's it going to take? Guys, you know, we're going into the fall. We're reaching the end of of our year, and if everybody gave what they're supposed to give, do you know the ministry that could be done in our city through our little church? We're not a little church, but compared to some we are. You know, in Malachi chapter 3, 
It's talking about the temple or the church of that day. And God gives instruction through the prophet Malachi to God's people where he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there'd be food in my house. And then God says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will be protected. And he says, you know what's going to happen? All the nations are going to call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is one of the few places in the scripture, you know, all through the Bible, you're going to see it says, do not test the Lord your God, do not test the Lord your God, do not put the Lord your God to the test until it gets to generosity. And then God says, test me. You test me on this. And you see if I will not do a miracle in your life. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be a financial miracle. The prosperity doctrine is not something I advocate. <laughs> I, I think it's silliness, to be honest. Theological mumbo-jumbo. But if you want to live as a human person supposed to live in obedience to Christ and have a blessed life knowing that you're walking right with God and that God's blessing you as a result of the obedience of believing him and trusting him as his word, listen, we say it in the world. You've got to put your money where you're... This is what Paul's saying. You've proved yourself by this. And God looks at you and he says, I want to put blessing into your hands. But he can't. Because you know why? You live with a clenched fist. It goes both ways. God says you need to open it up. In fact, let's do a little exercise. Everybody just take this position with me right now. Come on. Let me see you do it. This is called an open hand. Now, God says this is the kind of hand you use to give it away, but it's also the kind of hand you need to receive. God does want to bless you, but some of you, you live like this. You're hanging on. That's, what are you hanging on to that for? Release it to me. And let me begin to do something in your life that you'll grow spiritually like never before. I'm praying that for you. I'm praying that for me. I hope you know the heart with which I communicate these very sobering and challenging words. I'd like to pray for us. Father, I pray for every man and woman, for young man, young woman. I pray we'd take you seriously on these things, that you would help us to live for you, follow you, to live in obedience to you. Lord, we want to see a revival in Fresno and in Clovis and in the Fresno County and Kerman and, and yeah, Chowchilla and all the rural areas, Madera and Selma and Kingsburg. And, and Lord, we want to see revival, but that's not going to come from emotionalism or good music. It's going to come through a movement of obedience of people who are truly surrendered to you. And so would you let it start here at our church? Would we be blessed to be people from richer, a revival of your spirit moves? God, we ask you for that. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but that we'd be doers of the word. Oh, God, we repent. We give you our lives. In Jesus' precious name. Everyone said...